everyone and welcome to the OMC's Mindfulness in the Workplace podcast series. Each of these sessions explores a different aspect of mindfulness in a different workplace context, as well as key themes that we believe will be relevant to support you. Previous episodes have covered mindfulness in medical settings, delivering mindfulness online and current research in mindfulness are all on the OMC podcast page for listeners to access. I'm Sharon Hadley, the CEO of the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, and today we're going to be discussing conflict in the workplace, mindful communication. I am delighted to be joined by Associate Professor Philippe Golden. Philippe's a personal friend of mine um, who's supported my interest, oh, for years, Philippe, um, of mindfulness in the workplace. You're part of my PhD committee, um, where we're exploring the cost effectiveness of mindfulness in the workplace. And I think along with those things, you have various connections, but I'm delighted you're joining us today to explore conflict in the workplace. As a clinical neuroscientist, Philippe's work explores how different types of interventions, one of them being mindfulness, impact on emotion reactivity, emotion and attention regulation, and how we view ourselves. So I pulled that from your website, Philippe, but that's a very light touch and doesn't go anywhere near explaining all of the work that you do um, and contributions to the field. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about how you personally were introduced to mindfulness? Simply put, um, my mother went off to India and Nepal by herself. When she came back, she was adamant. Philippe, you have to go. <laughs> she didn't explain why, but I heeded her advice and I ended up spending my third and fourth year of university living in Nepal and traveling through India uh, and meeting many different uh, Tibetan lamas, studying Sanskrit, Nepali, um, Tibetan languages. And I then spent another three and a half years living in Dharamsala in Northern India, where I studied Tibetan language, debate, philosophy, did lots of meditation retreats, lived in Namgyal Monastery, Dalai Lama's monastery, and um, really immersed myself in Buddhist thinking, ideas, um, sensibility. Wow, so, so mother was right. Mother was right, and she continues to be. <laughs> oh, lovely. And now you're bringing all of this into your work. And yeah, I mean, we're not, in half an hour, we're not going to cover that. I know the contributions you've made to the field, um, you know, particularly in the workplace, we're not going to, we're not going to cover that, but I know they've been great. Thank you. On a personal level for that, you've really supported my work. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Indeed. So we have, um, we have 30 minutes, 25 maybe, and we've, we've got a, um, a series of questions which um, maybe we'll stick to, or maybe we will explore off in a different direction, but let's see how we go. Um, maybe we'll start with something a bit more general. What are the common causes of suffering and anxiety in the workplace? What would you say they were? Yes, so one core problem is misunderstanding. And specifically there, that relates to not sharing perhaps a common language, um, culture, or even definitions of the, the ideas and the words that we use when we work with each other. So concrete example at Google, when I was there and we're trying to work with teams, often uh, there would be a team with five, six different um, nationalities, people of very different ethnic, racial, linguistic backgrounds, and making sure that they understood each other um, was paramount. Um, that was very common. The other thing is 
we all bring different kinds of communication skills and sometimes they are effective and sometimes they're not. And the, one of the biggest things is inattention. Like when we don't really attend to the other people that we work with and understand their view, their perspective, it is so easy to inadvertently slip into a misunderstanding that could be small initially and then a rift can grow much wider. And that is not what we want on teams in the workplace in order to be effective. Yeah. yeah. So I guess not just different languages and cultures, but also different modes for communication uh, uh, kind of set things up for misunderstandings. Email doesn't often provide bandwidth, does it, for, for delicate or difficult conversations? Yes, I think we have to be very careful um, in all the different electronic and even person-to-person uh, media that we use to, to try to understand and to communicate to, to others. But one key thing that, that could help with this is uh, simply confirming one's understanding of what another person is saying and meaning. And not just the words, but the meaning behind the words. And this is actually a, uh, about a disciplined practice in making sure that we check in and, and, under, and make clarify, did I get this right? Is this really what you're saying? Yeah. And it doesn't cost a lot of time or energy, but it brings about um, a sense of interest in the other and also really nailing down that we have correctly and, uh, and valid, validly understood what another person is saying and wants or needs. Yeah, 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 yeah thank you. Yeah. So, so is there evidence there? So, so your answer to the question of what are the most common causes of suffering and anxiety and your response is, misunderstanding which can then lead to uh, you know and the topic we're discussing is conflict so I think what you're saying is this is me repeating back to you right to check that I understand this is that misunderstanding well <laughs> through communication can lead to conflict which then can lead to anxiety and and stress in the workplace That's, yes yeah most definitely and um you know, another aspect to this is in being clear with each other, and especially if you're a manager or a director or if you're a lead of a team, is um, often there's a lack of clarity about the roles and the expectations or even the guidelines for contribution to a project or to a common um, cause of, that a team is working on. So in fact, being clear about roles and expectations is an act of kindness. That yeah that can be done. And again, it has to be a habit that we have to develop um, and, I, and to really monitor if the people on the team respond positively to that. Yeah. And, and, and also inviting others to, to ask for more clarification if, there, if something is not clear. And when, when, whenever we are in a state where there's ambiguity, uncertainty, that by itself induces um, anxiety, worry, fear. Yeah. And there are ways to try to be sensitive to that and to um, preempt that from um, expanding into a, a major problem. Um, another aspect here that's important is for people to really understand their leadership style. There are some people who still have a notion that the, one of the ways to be effective is to use fear and intimidation. And that's very common in the workplace. And I would just simply put, you know, to, for people to, to question, is that really the best method? Is that the, the most um, effective method long-term to really get people who work with me motivated and engaged and um, loyal? Yeah. 
So this kind of leads into our kind of second, a second question really is what, you know, what are, what can we do and what can we introduce into the workplace to deal with conflict and misunderstanding? So you've already talked a couple of techniques, they're clarifying roles, being clear, knowing your own style. What else could we do, um, particularly on the mindfulness agenda that would support? Yeah. I mean, clearly under the scope of mindfulness, um, <clears throat> you, know, the, I have a, you know, there are several constructs or ideas. You know, for example, to bring a genuine sense of caring for the people who you work with. And other people will feel that, especially if it's authentic. Um, valuing people's contribution and uh, reinforcing it by verbalizing, noting the value that other people bring. Um, that's also something that comes up, you know, I think as an authentic quality when people are more mindful. The other concrete, especially when you're working with another person or groups is active listening and having an attitude that's interested in, in engaging in active listening of the other, which really has to do with calming down a little bit the noise in one's own head so that you're really attending to what others are saying and thinking and feeling. Um, and you could also say that this is in a more potent way is, is empathy. It's, it's a form of empathic listening that we know from research and just brain research, other people's brains are equipped to feel that to notice it and to respond with approach as opposed to avoidance. And these are things that I think are either explicitly trained during mindfulness or are derived from some of the, the states of mind that, that when people are practicing mindfulness. Those are some of the qualities. Um, but then I would say there's also more detailed structural things that we can do in the workplace. For example, uh, providing everyone with a structure and methods or even a common language for resolving conflict, for noticing what conflict is, and then being able to bring a common set of tools towards it as a group or as a team or as an organization. Um, Nonviolent communication, that's one form of training that has very detailed and structured formats for how to uh, approach conflict between people. And I think that's, that's very productive by itself. Um, other thoughts were to really examine the effects of cooperative versus competitive styles of handling conflict. Some people still induce conflict on teams in order to try to control or manipulate and as opposed to trying to scaffold cooperative uh, modes of interactions between people. And this is something that has to do with awareness, with care, compassion, and with intentionality, which are all touched during um, mindfulness training. Um, then I think another aspect of this could be that when we onboard, when you take a job and you're onboarded to a company, an organization, does the company explicitly train people in how to deal with conflict and how to use tools to resolve it before it occurs? And so that everyone uh, has no excuse for saying, we never received any training, we don't know how to do this. If that became part of the, the fabric of a culture from the beginning of your career in a company or your tenure at an organization. I think these are very concrete and not too costly steps that can help um, preempt or resolve conflict more quickly. Yeah, thank you. 
was thinking as you were speaking there for, for kind of concrete examples of how of how you might so the things that you've listed around you know the genuine sense of caring and value and contributions and active listening we know are all things that can that can be um, developed through mindfulness you know we've known from the research that mindfulness courses support the enhancement of these qualities in in, in individuals but the, the earlier you spoke around different cultures and different languages different people in the workplace and I wonder if there are any other so you gave us one concrete example of how you may when your uh, new new team members come in you might do that induction or onboarding process that you called it mm -hmm. where you would talk about how to support conflict um, or how to support lack of conflict in the workplace. Are there any other, um, sorry to, to spring this on you, but are there any other kind of concrete examples around how taking into account the different languages and the different cultures in a workplace and what else we could do in practice to foster that um, communication, whether it be via email or in meetings or in person, to be more sensitive and um, more genuine and and to hear and to listen in a way that that supports teams. I mean, especially well, a couple of things. So, in terms of um, mindful, like emailing or communication, texting, there, I think, if I had to be really um, pinpoint, it would be to keep those electronic forms of communication very short, concrete, and not ambiguous. Yeah when the signal that's coming through an electronic, be it a text, email, uh, et cetera, is if the signal is ambiguous, the, the receiver begins to fill in, often with negative thoughts, negative interpretations, worry, fear, uncertainty, that especially if that lingers, induces anxiety and fear. Um, <clears throat> so I think keep making that part of the culture. The other thing we can do is, uh, condense many separate pieces of electronic communication um, in, into one so that we don't overwhelm or bombard other people. That's another specific uh, kind of mode uh, contract that a team would say, instead of pinging you 10 times, we're going to keep track of things and then send you only one or two emails or text messages. That's an act of kindness towards the receiver. Uh, a whole other aspect is when you're working on a team and somebody has to be the lead. This goes more towards personality. And this actually I've worked with in groups at, at Google as well, where the person who's been asked to be the team lead is someone who is not inherently or naturally someone who wants to be a leader or is more inhibited or more socially anxious. Then I think it's very important for the group and even for that person who's been elevated to leader to explain his or her style and to share his or her biases, and even to ask for help, saying, this is not a role that I'm naturally um, attuned to, and I would like. And I think also from a gender or biological sex basis, if a woman is leading a group of men, for example, I think it's very important at the beginning to lay out um, procedures, possible pitfalls, um, whether everyone is actually uh, understands any kind of uh, biases, cultural biases, right? And um, that's very important as well. And I think that's something that, that a team, if they're, especially if they're, they've been trained in mindfulness together, they might be more open to discussing explicit and implicit biases. And then also microaggressions is something I think we could benefit a lot from in our mindfulness training is understanding the corrosive or the toxic 
quality of these microaggressions, feeling it in the body, sensory processing, speaking about it, being authentic, and helping other people understand um, how maladaptive and how harmful those can be in any setting. And sometimes how automatic and unaware we are because of our culture, our language, our gender, how, how we do this with each other. Yeah. I think that nitty gritty detail can make a huge impact on teams, divisions, even a whole company. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I love that. So those two, the two things for me that not being ambiguous, we do tend to fill in the gaps, don't we? Um, and um, that that's not always a positive experience. And and that explaining the style, I think not just for leaders explain their style, but actually for team members. Yes. Anybody, this is this is how I work. This is my style. And this is what's most supportive for me. Fostering an environment where that feels the norm to talk about that, I think, uh, you know, feels healthy. And establishing norms, like you could imagine that a team would say, look, we're going to meet every day for half an hour. Let's discuss and come to a consensus of how, how are we going to interact with each other. For example, we could say at beginning of meetings, let's take 30 seconds to be silent and drop in, an intentional pause. We can also say, for example, when people are discussing issues or giving presentations or sharing information, that people have to be attentive, meaning their eyes are not down on a phone underneath the table. And you make that an explicit agreement that that's the level of attention, intention and attention and motivation that we will bring to our team interactions um, so that people do not feel um, dismissed. Yeah. So this is touching on, on the another section that we wanted to explore is how to sustain and support resilience in the workplace. So one of them would be to establish norms around meetings and, you know, practices that, you know, the good practices in meetings. What else would there be that you could that you could recommend on sustaining, sustaining resilience and good practices in the workplace. Yeah. So given that, you know, mindfulness, uh, communication skills training, even compassion training, all of these can happen um, in the workplace. And that's wonderful. But remember, at what, it's eight weeks, a couple yeah. hours a week. But we're talking about people who are there working together for months, years, decades at a time. So, um, what are some of the things that could happen? Well, I think you know, if you're talking about you know, core ideas, you know, deepening our emotion regulation, both for our own benefit and for others, our, our self-awareness, and then refining um, our attention to and sensitivity to the people around us. And <clears throat> from a mindfulness perspective, we know that regular mindfulness practice should generate a sense of caring for others, greater attention regulation, perhaps greater intentionality, and even empathy and compassion. But from the perspective of a company, you know, be it a CEO, director, or team lead, I think having very clear values and stating them regularly and integrity and really not only speaking, but actually living the values, especially if you're a very visible person at a company. Um, I think that's extremely important because then you become a, a continuous example of the qualities that this company wants to um, show. And I think especially from the point of view of a CEO or a director to re-clarify and re-energize 
the specific culture that you want in the workplace. It's not enough to just say it once at an annual meeting, but to do it repeatedly, I think is incredibly uh, important um, to demonstrate to everyone. Um, another very simple thing that, that, again, is not costly, but feels so good is regularly giving credit when a team does something that's, that's really productive and beneficial. And that can either be on a verbal level or it can be through an electronic newsletter, but um, giving credit um, as a reward to people when, and teams that work, yeah, that work well together. Nothing that reinforces other people wanting that same kind of um, positive attention, I would say. Touching um, back on your earlier kind of a genuine sense of caring, being authentic and it, it kind of all loops in, doesn't it? Yeah, because I think we can slip very easily into biases, into being inauthentic. Um, and other people that we interact with every single day feel it. Yeah. And yeah. their body mind reacts to it when we're not being genuine. Yeah. For sure. You touched on the kind of CEO role um, and um, I wonder, um, a lot of the, the words and language we use around the impact and the support of mindfulness training in the workplace is, 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 is around, quite rightly, the, the person, the, you know, the human involved and how that person then interacts with the organization and, the, and how that spreads to their, their lives, the wider lives, the you know, ecosystems around them. But I wonder for the for the CEOs and the people that are heading up large organizations that are only just beginning to hear about mindfulness, they're really not sure, they're not sure what it is and how the language that they're more used to is much more around business, business measurables. So if you were stopped by a CEO on the street and you just had a couple of minutes while you're waiting for the bus to come along or something like that, and they say, Oh, yeah, I've heard about this thing called mindfulness, why would I want to? introduce that into my organization. What would be the kind of, I think we call them kind of golden nuggets or kind of key, the best is coming. What would, what, would you, what would you say that you'd want to be really impactful and meaningful for that person that could understand what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Um, well, coming at this as a uh, empiricist who loves to measure things, I would say, look, measure um, at least annually the zeitgeist of your, the people who work in your company. And that can be anonymous so that people don't worry about any repercussions, but what's, what is genuinely the level of, of a work engagement yeah. in your company? What's the level of emotional exhaustion? Um, what's the level of uh, autonomy and freedom within the company to grow both professionally and personally? Measure that and then ask yourself where, what, parameters or what kind of qualities can we introduce into the workplace as a kind of a laboratory to enhance the motivation for work, the creativity, to reduce emotional despair or exhaustion. And, and then personally for the CEO and maybe directors, I would say uh, from personal experience to get them to go away from the company and spend some time in outside of work in a place where there's a retreat with other people of the same level. So if it's C-suite, a C-suite uh, <laughs> um, retreat, even for a day to speak with people 
who are at your level in other companies to get a sense, because we know that the higher that a person goes in, in a company as they get promoted, the more lonely and isolated they are and the fewer number of people they have where they can speak openly and freely without repercussions. So to recognize one way to counter that is to connect with other people at the same level across companies yeah. in an arena that's psychologically safe. Yeah. So when you said to connect, to get a sense, a sense of, of what? A sense of um, the trials and tribulations and worries that other people on the same level are experiencing, how other people have experimented with different tools, skills, trainings for their organization that brings up the common denominator of wellness, awareness, um, that you may not be able to talk about within your company, but you can talk with other people across companies. But you know, we speak about wellness, right? And then we want everyone to be well, we want wellness programs. Another thing that mindfulness, compassion, empathy, awareness can bring is, is it possible to make the workplace a place where a person feels that they can grow professionally and personally, even if it's across decades or lifelong service at the company? Imagine that, right? In the past, we had people would go to monasteries or universities and really grow. Why can't the workplace become a place that is for um, supports continuous evolving, growing professionally, skills, um, depth? And it can be, but that, that's an intentional choice of how you wanna sculpt your, your work environment. Thank you, Philippe. Yeah. So to wrap up, this series has been recorded for it, for, for general um, public, but also specifically for people in the workplace program. So I'm just, I'm thinking about what would be helpful for actually people that are teaching, that are training, that are being asked to go into workplaces and what they could take away from, from our discussion today. And it feels like one of the things that they could be doing is actively encouraging, like you say, if they're going and speaking to senior executives and CEOs is not just I can, come into your workplace and support the implementation of mindfulness, but also they're actively encouraging them to step out of their workplace and engage with other people so that maybe there's a role for mindfulness teachers in the workplace area to be collaborating more with each other, to be bringing groups of people together that are on similar levels to experience um, a network outside of their own, their own organizational domains. Um, yes. So that's one takeaway maybe. For sure, that and I've, I've um, led some of these groups for people across many companies in C-suite and it's incredibly valuable and enlightening. And people go, wow, I'm not the only one who's had that conflict or that trouble, or wow, that's a really creative solution I never thought about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the other takeaway for me is often when I think teachers go into a workplace and, and I ask this myself, I say, what is it you are, what is the driver for you introducing mindfulness into the workplace? And the common response from HR professionals or workplace people is we want to reduce stress and we want to, you know, um, reduce anxiety and support general well-being. But it's interesting that I very rarely hear people specifically say, I want to reduce conflict. And actually, it, if you drill down, it's the conflict that's possibly causing all these things. So maybe 
it's really been specific here, isn't it? By reducing conflict, the knock-on effect is, is on the anxiety and the, the stress that, you, that, that you're trying to target anyway by introducing mindfulness. Yeah, it, the, I totally agree with that. That it, you know, If you think about it, if, if conflict will occur, but are we equipped, meaning each of us in a group, on how to approach that conflict, how to trust each other and ourselves, and how to resolve the conflict more effectively and more clearly, that will nip in the bud yeah. the sources of stress, depression, anxiety, avoidance, phobia, fear yeah. by itself. And the more that I like, so can you imagine waking up in the morning and going, oh, I can't wait to go to work because I really care for and trust and value the people that I work with, as opposed to the opposite. Yeah, I can imagine that. I do, I do, you know, I'm very, some of us are very fortunate. Um, I, I think that nip in the bud is a really lovely line, actually, rather, you know, maybe we can look at this differently rather than tackling what's happening. Why don't we tackle why it's happening? Um, it, yeah. The yeah. root. Right. Yes, the roots, the roots of it. I think it's beautifully, beautifully said. Thank you, Philippe. So we are at the half hour. So um, I think I would like to thank you very much for your contribution and give, maybe give you the last word if, if you have one for all of the trainers that are looking to introduce mindfulness in the workplace. Um, Gladly. Um, if you have an opportunity it's, um, to really help people share with you what the, their own analysis of the root causes of their suffering or angst or despair at work. And perhaps if people can do this in writing, for example, without attaching a name, they'll feel more free to really share that. And for then uh, us as mindfulness instructors to really process that and notice the patterns and feed that back to the group. Yes. I think that could be a very, because you allow other people's voices to be heard safely without any repercussions, and then you feed it back to them. And perhaps, you know, under the rubric of mindfulness, are there different kinds of practices individually or relationally that you can introduce during, you know, um, eight weeks that really address some of the roots, not just the surface? Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. So what's the root cause of the distress in the workplace? Yeah, thank you. Good.